So I have and continue to have a successful and rewarding professional journey. No doubt I feel lucky. But no question, I am ridiculously driven. When I ran my nonprofit, my CFO one day stopped me in my tracks when he asked me this question. You throw yourself into your work every day like you have a terminal illness. <laughs> now, Carrie meant it as a compliment, actually, but I had never considered the intensity of my work style in that kind of way. Driven. My kids would say workaholic, that I'm kind of addicted to my work. So? I mean, in my past 20 years, I've been a professional activist for LGBTQ equality and now a champion for nonprofit leaders. I think of myself as a woman with a mission, and doesn't that demand drive? But what kind of toll does that take on your staff, your family, you? And when you add on to that, that I'm a person that worries that I've actually forgotten to worry about something, well, that's a problem. Someone suggested I learn about Dan Harris. His first book is called 10% Happier. And I, when I learned it was his path to discovering meditation, I said, eh, I'm plenty happy. Wife of 40 years, meaningful work. I play the piano. I exercise regularly. I play pickleball. And I'm always reading a book. I'm not going to take up something that's only going to get me 10% happier. Maybe 25%. But I decided to read it, and I was totally fascinated. This guy was me. And now he is a man with a mission. So I asked if we could talk and if I could throw a microphone in front of him, and he said yes. It's actually something this guy is quite used to. For 21 years, he worked as an anchor and correspondent for ABC News, hosting Nightline, weekend editions of Good Morning America. The list goes on. Now, you may think this is a podcast in which Dan will advocate that you take up meditation, and we will talk about that. But today, like many of you listening, Dan Harris is kind of a leader of a movement. He believes that meditation is actually a game changer for individuals in the world. And I want to talk about that, too, what it means to be a leader in a movement. He pictures a world in which he says, quote, in which significant numbers of people are 10% happier and less reactive, end quote. And he says, imagine what this could do for marriage, parenting, road rage, politics. Today we'll meet Dan Harris, a monumental skeptic who turned his drive into a mission to make the world 10% happier. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Dan Harris is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, 10% Happier, and the host of the 10% Happier podcast. For 21 years, he worked at ABC News, anchoring shows like Nightline, Good Morning America. And after his first book, Dan launched the 10% Happier app, and he wrote a second book called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. He started a podcast where he interviews celebrities, entrepreneurs, authors, scientists, and meditation teachers about how to do life better. Dan Harris, I really appreciate your joining today. Thanks for having me. So, after reading 10% Happier, I was so struck by how hardwired you are as a journalist. So your colleague and your producer, Felicia, mentions this guy named Eric Toll and a book he had written, and he said, she said, it's about controlling your ego. 
And you said, I'm always on the hunt for a story. And you thought this would make a good one. And it came at a time when you'd had a panic attack on national television, found your way to drugs, and were navigating, by all measures, a very successful professional career. You were also engaged. I'm curious, how much of your gut about this was a nose for a story, and how much of it came from where you were in your life and what you might subconsciously have been searching for? Well, it kind of morphed over time. There was a moment on the street in Jersey City when I was shooting a story and my producer, Felicia Baberica, was, I, I came up on her talking to the camera crew and she was talking to them about this book that she had just read by a guy named Eckhart Tolle, who is a mega best-selling self-help guru. And that's, that's when I arrived in the conversation and she turned around and said, Dan, you should read it. It's all about controlling your ego. And everybody started laughing because I'm was at that time a news anchor and we all have big egos. And I, I might've been, you know, like on the wrong end of the bell curve on that particular <laughs> psychodynamic. And so she, she started telling me, I wasn't interested in the whole controlling your ego thing, but she was telling me that Tolly was a, was super successful and all these celebrities were really into him. And at that time, I was covering one of my beats at ABC News was faith and spirituality. This was back in probably 07, 08, something like that. And, and the culture wars with the evangelicals were in full swing. And so, but, but I was branching out beyond just, you know, the, the, the stuff having to do with the evangelicals and, and this celebrity self-help guru who was beloved by Oprah, that, that just struck me as maybe there's a story there. So I ordered one of his books and started to read it. And that's when my interest really shifted. First, I thought that he was just a complete lunatic, just totally full of shit. And he had all this like spiritual mumbo jumbo in his answers. And so at first I was totally turned off. But then he's then he got into the stuff about the ego, by which he meant not like the 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 way we often use ego in the culture is just like one part of the ego, which is thinking you're great. But he was talking about ego as in thinking generally. This nonstop conversation we are all having with ourselves, this yammering voice that is just with us all the time, and which if we broadcast aloud, you would be locked up. That voice, the <laughs> inner narrator. And I found that to be totally fascinating and, and just was able to interpolate it back to my whole life and think about how so many of the dumb things I had done were the result of not having any visibility into the machinations of the ego. And it, and it becomes the, in that way, a kind of uh, malevolent puppeteer. You know, you it's just controlling you. Every thought that, that flits through your consciousness, you act it out oh, I should say something that's going to ruin the next 48 hours of my marriage and then you just do it. Or, oh yeah, I should eat that sleeve of Oreos and then you just do it. And for me, that also, you know, like I, I was able to apply it to, to the worst, one of the worst moments of my life when I had a panic attack on national television back in right. 2004. And, and so I was able to understand that panic attack that you may want to talk about through this lens of the ego. And that kind of really set me off on a whole big, that's, you know, snowballing journey that has landed me, you know, here talking to you. So I do want to come back at some point to your covering the faith beat and your producer, Juan Bo Wu, who was my, who worked for me at GLAAD and, and came yeah. from GLAAD to you. A good move on his part, good law and uh, big loss for us. But I did actually love 
it was such a wombo thing to say that you were stereotyping evangelicals and that you really needed to actually understand them in a kind of 3D way, which I thought was, he didn't calm down the fidgety part of you, but may have calmed down some of the skeptic part of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So malevolent narrator, is that, you talk about this thing called the monkey mind. I want to hear about the monkey mind because I think it's going to resonate for a lot of people who are listening here. Is the malevolent narrator and the monkey mind similar, different, or connected? Just the same, it's the same thing you described in different ways. You know, the ego is the terminology that Eckhart Tolle uses. The monkey mind is an expression that stems back to the Buddha. And it's just a way of describing that we have these out-of-control inner lives. And when you don't see it, when you're not aware of the inner cacophony and chaos in the right way, when you have diminished self-awareness, then the noise owns you. And that's the project of meditation is to become aware in the right way. That's important, that asterisk, of the noise so that you're, you can relate to it differently. You can relate to everything differently. I so want what you're having. <laughs> But I am a <laughs> but I am a fidgety skeptic, so I'm going to continue asking questions, and I suspect that there are fidgety skeptics among our listener base here too. At 22, you were a reporter, kind of hardwired that way, and you said, "I delighted in the opportunity to get intrigued by an obscure but important subject, and then devise ways to teach viewers something that might be useful or illuminating about it." Do you think of yourself as it relates to meditation? One could say that you have moved from being a journalist to being something else, but is this actually kind of a variation on a theme that you're delighting in the opportunity to get intrigued by an obscure but important subject and then try to teach people about it? Yeah, you're making me think. It's interesting because I wrote that book 10 years ago and it came out nine years ago and I... I don't reread it with any regularity. So <laughs> I don't remember. I mean, I, that the, the, the quote that you just read back to me from me about me is accurate, but it, it's interesting and useful to hear it again, because absolutely that, that, that is a through line in my, totally. in my life. Yes. Yeah. I, I, that's, I, I was trying to figure out what connects Dan, the, you know, the driven journalist to this, and what, that's that's when I read that when I read that quote, I thought maybe maybe that's 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 where it hooks together. Do you? Th- so I I proposed in my open that you are something of a meditation evangelist. That you are somebody who is leading a movement to get people to understand the power of meditation. I I would like you to reflect on my characterization and tell me I'm full of shit or that it resonates for you? I would say it's 95% correct. I definitely describe myself as a meditation evangelist. I don't know that I'm leading the movement. I would say I'm part of a movement. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm not I'm not trying to be persnickety with you. I'm just trying to, you know, be accurate and appropriately humble. I am following <laughs> the footsteps of people who, you know, of a tradition that dates back 2,600 years and of people who are still drawing breath on the planet today who are out there teaching people how to meditate and have way more experience than I do. I sometimes joke that my whole value proposition is that I 
take the teachings of the Buddha, add the word fuck and uh, and then tell funny stories and make good content that gets people interested. And in that way, I kind of think of myself as a gateway drug, you know, that, yeah. that I can take my 30 years of experience in television news, which is all about, you know, getting people interested, interested enough to stay through a commercial break. And so I have the, those that training and to apply that to something more important than the news. And that is, you know, the mind, which is everything, you know, it's everything. We experience everything through this one filter. And that if your filter is off, everything's off. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't say the leader of, of the movement. I said a leader of a movement. <laughs> Just yes. to clarify. Yeah. Yes. Your place in this movement it's a pretty crowded movement, actually. Not just yeah. with sort of those folks on whose shoulders you stand, but, I mean, you can't go into, you know, onto Amazon or to Barnes & Noble without seeing hundreds of books about meditation. And maybe you could talk for a little bit about what makes your point of view unique. I think it's what I said about dropping F-bombs. I think that's part of it. Yeah. I think there's a journalistic rigor that I bring to it. And I think that Many of the books that you'll find on Amazon are, are incredible, but they they tend to be straight up pedagogical. You know, yeah. I'm going to teach you how to do this thing, which is amazing. I am I don't have that kind of experience. What I know how to do is create content that's engaging. So, or hopefully engaging. Some people don't like it at all, but that enough people can you know pick up my book and feel like, oh, I'm sucked into a story that's going to carry me all the way to the end, or. I, you know, I'm, I have a meditation app and a lot of the content we make is video. And so I can craft three to five minute videos that really teach you something in a succinct way, but also make you laugh. And that's really where, where I think I contribute something that's, I don't know if it's unique, but it's certainly differentiated. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, it's, it's interesting when I started my blog or when I wrote my book, it's like, there are lots of books on nonprofit leadership out there, and I better have something unique to say. Otherwise, there's lots of other ways I could spend my time. So, yeah. and, and I, thought, I thought in reading your book that the journey of the fidgety skeptic was a story that kind of certainly had me at hello, actually. You know, as I think about who we're talking to today, I believe we're talking to a lot of fidgety well, I don't know if we're talking to a lot of skeptics, but we're certainly talking to a lot of fidgety people. These are folks who lead organizations large and small. You know, it could be anything from a library to a suicide prevention hotline, right? They could be selling tickets to a cultural event or keeping people from killing themselves, right? So they find shelter for the unhoused, and they multitask from one end of the day to the other. They're totally under-resourced. And some of them actually find themselves in front of cameras talking to journalists, like you were at one time, to debate the validity of their causes or their communities, right? Then they go after that and they go close gifts. They manage people. They write op-eds. They work for people like boards who have never had their own jobs. And these are people who are type A personalities who don't stop because they don't feel like they can they're passionate and driven. And I wonder if you, I mean, I read your book and many people, you know, and I'm advocating that people read your book for this very reason, but maybe you can speak to them and help them to understand what you've learned and how meditation can help them in the context of what I, sort of the profile I just described of the, you know, the typical nonprofit leader. 
Yeah, I think that these are my people. In my work, I've actually, this is going to sound a little weird, been deeply influenced by the crime genre. I love watching detectives figure something out. Mm. I think that's a primordially pleasing process. There's a reason why true crime, fictional crime, even movies about journalists, you know, thinking about like Spotlight or She Said more recently, where you watch people fig- unravel something and figure something out is, or even House MD, you know, where you right. watch a doctor come up with a, uh, my mom was a pioneering academic physician, you know, at a time when there weren't many women at getting, you know, full professorships at Harvard. And one of yeah. her big contributions, which that she was the editor of a section of the New England Journal of Medicine called the CPCs, the clinical, I don't know what it stood for actually, but it was basically where they take a hard case and try to figure it out. And my mom would chair the committee of of clinicians trying to figure out what the diagnosis was. And she organized all of her, it became the most popular part of the magazine is because she told them through the lens of Agatha Christie because she that she was she loved reading crime novels and so awesome. I have a very sim I have a very similar approach to my work and so one of the th- mysteries I was trying to f- unravel in Ten Percent Happier was how do I get happier without losing my edge how do I stay effective and ambitious and motivated without kicking my own ass. And that struck me as a, like, I I didn't know the answer to that. My father, also an academic physician, had an expression that that I muse on a lot, noodle on a lot in the book, which is the price of security is insecurity. And so that that summed up the dilemma. Like, you can't be successful if you're not miserable. You know, a lot of people (laughs) point to, you know, Van Gogh, would he have made such beautiful art if he didn't, you know, wasn't so crazy that he chopped off his ear and et cetera, et cetera. I think the the TLDR on this is actually people are are conflating happiness with complacency. Mm. To be happy does not mean that you sit on rest on your laurels and eat ice cream the rest of your life. You could be very happy and engaged and even furious, you know what I mean? Like you could be yeah. furious that people in the LGBTQ plus community are mistreated to this day and that can be a burning source of motivation. But, you know, you might, with a little meditation on board, be able to move the, you know, turn the dial between fury and love. Because what's beneath that fury? I mean, this is a little cheesy to say, but it's love. And I define love in a very capacious, broad way. It's just giving a shit. I give yeah. a shit about my community or the community that I'm not even a part of, but I I believe I see myself to be an ally. And that's that's what's underneath the anger, right? And similarly with being effective and being able to use the word multitask. So that's actually a term I, I don't like just because it's it's a computer term and we don't have more than one processor. We, we, we can only do one thing at a time. And so multitasking is neurologically impossible. But we, we, you know, we, want to neuro, we want to push hard. We want to work hard. We want to put in long hours. We want to be maximally effective. We need to jump from task to task sometimes. Well, do you think meditation, which has been shown in by the neuroscientists to boost the brain's capacity for focus and boost the brain's capacity for self-awareness, otherwise known as mindfulness, reduce the brain's penchant for stress. Do you think mindfulness is going to make you more? I mean, do you think meditation is going to make you more or less effective? I posit that it will make you more effective. And so I don't think 
I think this is just a false lens that we've put on it, that you can be way happier, happiness understood not as I just won the lottery excitement or I'm never going to have to worry about anything again or I'm refusing to worry about anything again, complacency. Happiness as fully engaged in meaningful work uh, and the people around me and not so stuck in my inner dialogue of self-flagellation, comparison, and judgment, that kind of happiness is going to make you more effective. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And just a few minutes ago, you talked about the issue of complacency. And you learned a lesson about that in the book when Bianca actually encouraged you to be more assertive. And could you talk a little bit about that journey? Because I think that was that was really helpful for me who is actually seeing it in a rather binary way. I could have monkey mind and be like ridiculously driven, or I could be calm and therefore somehow passive or complacent. And you you had a little bit of that journey. Yes, yes. I fell into what is often referred to as a kind of pitfall of the path. And I write about it in the book after I had started meditating and and it really did make a difference. I, I don't know if I tell the story in the book. It was a funny story that I sometimes tell, but... Just a few weeks into meditation, I overheard my wife at a cocktail party telling a friend that, oh, yeah, Dan started meditating and he's less of a shithead. And <laughs> it was, I could really feel the benefits that I was less, I was more focused and less and more mindful, which mindfulness basically means the ability to see what's happening in your head without getting carried away by it. I was less emotionally reactive, more emotionally intelligent. And it was, and, and just calmer, you know, this, the act of meditating for a couple of minutes every day just eased my sort of nervous system activation, you know, and, and, and it was all going well, but the, the further I got into meditation, I started noticing, or my wife, Bianca, started to notice that I was shying away from rising to some work challenges. Specifically, we got a very dynamic new boss mm -hmm. at ABC News, uh, which is a very competitive place internally. It's very competitive. And, and I was kind of refusing to do the thing that I would have done heretofore, which is get in his face, advocate for myself, say that I need this job, that job, et cetera, et cetera, because I didn't know how to do it in this more mindful mode. And so I just chose to be passive. And Bianca just noticed it and, and gave me a good talking to. And what I realized is you could still absolutely, you can, should you can and should be just as forceful and engaged. You just can, it can come from a different place. And I don't, I didn't need to get in his face in an aggressive and mean way. And I didn't need to trash talk my competitors. I just needed to make a positive case for myself in a polite way. You could say what you mean without being mean about it. And that is what I needed to learn that there is in Buddhism, we talk a lot about the middle path. You know, that we, we set up these dichotomies, either um, full-on monkey mind and therefore effective or full-on complacent and therefore happy but not effective. And there's actually a middle path between these two. And, I mean, much of life is effectively lived right there. Yeah, it's very interesting. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast.
We are talking to a guy who is no longer a shithead. His name is Dan Harris, <laughs> and he's the author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, 10% Happier, the host of the 10% Happier podcast. He had a long and successful career at ABC News, and he is a part of, you know, he's a bit of a meditation evangelist, and we're talking about its, its real value in focus and being more effective and his own journey. So today you, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you run a for-profit company that is totally mission-centric around this idea of being 10% happier. And I, I actually wonder how you measure success and impact. I mean, I also run a for-profit business that is very mission-centric in terms of helping leaders and managers of nonprofits become more effective. So kind of was just, I, I was just wondering how you measure success and impact. I'd be happy to talk about that. J just to say that when you said he's no longer a shithead, actually, I still am a shithead. And these, these changes are not, it takes time. You're trying to yeah. counter program against a lifetime and maybe lifetimes of habits. Let me just, I, I, while you were talking there, I pulled up a quote from Please. the Dalai Lama, who who says the changes in attitudes never come easily. It's a wide round curve that can be negotiated only slowly, not a sharp corner that can be turned all at once. It comes with daily practice. And so I retain the capacity to be a schmuck in many, many ways. And I'm there isn't like some arrival at this impeccable equipoise. And, you know, you're you're we live the one non-negotiable rule of the universe is impermanence. Everything's changing all the time. And I think I'm better at negotiating these changes with some more suppleness, but I make a lot of mistakes. So yeah. just to be clear about that and, and to set the bar. I will accept that friendly amendment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, and it's meant to really for you and the listeners to know that you should set the bar low. You know, this is why I went with 10% happier. I mean, I, I do think like any good investment, it compounds annually. And and I'm way more than 10% happier now, but I'm not lawless. <laughs> so I make mistakes. And and so, and the same will be true for you. And and the just that that just makes it easy. You, you can be a little easier on yourself. In terms of answering the, your question, the question you actually asked me, I am in a leadership position in the 10% happier organization, but I don't run it. I don't have any experience as a manager and that's that's not me. But I, I still, to answer your question about how I think about success, you know, I, I, I don't know that I've ever articulated this, but I mean, to the best of my ability, I would say that I, I'd like to think about it in as broad a way as possible. Like, you know, there are KPIs, there are, you know, you want to keep keep in mind growth and profitability and our fiduciary responsibility to our investors and my own personal burn rate and all of you. There's a lot of math in there that is, is important. And then there's the impact on our customers and users and listeners to my podcasts. And that's also incredibly important. And finally, there's the day-to-day you know, job satisfaction, uh, functioning of the team, yeah. how much psychological safety is there? In other words, you know, how safe to even the most junior people feel and speaking up. And so I, I would say those three areas are the ones where I most think about in terms of ours, where I spend the most mental energy in terms of measuring our success. The other thing that came up in your book, and I, I do think about it, that meditation has continues to have a bit of a PR problem. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, um, 100%. Yeah. And where do you feel it is, 
you know, today relative to where you were on, you know, at the beginning of your own journey and what, you know, what role you feel like you're playing in sort of, if I could go back to my my colleague Juan Bo Wu and shattering stereotypes, right? Do you, you know, sort of, where do you think the area is today, this practice? And do you feel like as a result of your work that you're making headway in shattering those stereotypes? Well, look, I mean, enormous amount of progress has been made since I think I got interested in meditation in 08 or 09. And right. I sometimes joke that it was, I was the first time in my life I was ahead of a of a trend. And <laughs> then my book came out in 2014. And that was right around the time that the meditation hype cycle was revving up. And, you know, now we have this massive proliferation of meditation apps. And there are all these podcasts about mental health and, and happiness. And the stigmas around mental health have really come down. And I think helpful ways, and maybe with a small asterisk, some unhelpful ways, the society has really moved on this. It is not, when I first started meditating, People thought it was very strange. It was like I, you, I did not admit this in mixed company. Right, and you were not. You were actually in the closet as a meditator. A hundred percent, yes. And so now it's it's completely normal. It's certainly on the coasts to, yes. of the United States to say that you meditate. And I was in Kentucky the other day talking to a group of people about meditation. I give talks all over the country, way off the coasts, about meditation, and I it has changed so much. That being said, I do think there are huge issues. One is that in in some parts of the country, it is still weird and unacceptable, and by the way, in the world, to talk about meditation. So there's that. And even in the areas where it is accepted, I think there are a lot of people, I know there are a lot of people who don't do it because they're under the misapprehension that in order to do it, you need to clear your mind. And any of us, you know, any eight-year-old attempts the thought experiment of 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 halting all thinking and realizes very quickly that is impossible. So if you think that you have to clear your mind in order to meditate, then you're not going to do it. And that is totally untrue. Clearing your mind, as I often joke, is impossible unless you're enlightened or you've died. The point, the goal, <laughs> the exercise of meditation is to focus for a few nanoseconds at a time at something below the level of thought. So usually like the raw data of a physical sensation like the breath entering and exiting the body. And then you will get distracted a million times. And it is in that moment of distraction that most people tell themselves the following story. Oh, I'm a failed meditator. I'm out, deuces, it's over. But actually the moment of waking up from distraction is not proof of failure, it's proof of success because the whole point of meditation is to get familiar with how wild your mind is how insane and inane many of our habitual thought patterns are so that you're no longer so owned by those ancient storylines and unhelpful urges, et cetera, et cetera. That's the, that, that you're not trying to reach some perfect point of imperturbability. You're, you're, you're doing this bicep curl for your brain. And when you do a bicep curl in the gym, it's uncomfortable. It should be that you're challenging the muscle. And what you're doing here with your brain, and by extension, your mind is trying to focus on one thing at a time, getting distracted, noticing you've become distracted and starting again and again and again. That is meditation. That hard and sometimes humiliating process of getting familiar with what your life is actually about. You might think your life is about service and 
and love and connection. And yeah, on some level it is, but most of your life is like, what's for lunch? Do I need a haircut? Where do gerbils run wild? All these like ridiculous thoughts, you know, or, or you know, you're planning a homicide or you're planning some glorious expletive filled speech you're going to deliver to your board or whatever it is. That is what's happening on a moment to moment basis in your mind most of the time. And when you don't see it, your life becomes polluted by it. And what, what the this exercise is designed to do is to engineer a very deliberate collision between you and your inner narrator so that you can have more space. So the fact that I am distracted, so, you know, I've, and I do have a, a couple of um, kind of ridiculous questions for you because I'm the interviewer, so I get to ask them. The, the fact that I've noticed my mind is not quiet, that I've noticed that I'm actually now off somewhere and that thought is like I'm chasing after this thought. That's actually a good, that's actually a good Huge thing. Huge victory. Huge that's victory. a victory. Yes. And you may notice in that moment that your first instinct is to self-flagellate. Seeing the self-flagellation is in itself another victory. You're just like, gently red pilling yourself like they talk about in the matrix you're taking this pill that allows you to see <laughs> you're in a matrix and the whole world is created by these thoughts many of which are very dumb or handed down to you through your parents or the Mostly culture dumb. and yeah. yeah and so you can just see oh that's stupid i don't need to believe that or that's not helpful i can i don't need to believe that or maybe some of them are helpful and low oh, let's go with those and it's like a thresher you know in agricultural terms like separating wheat from chaff and it's very helpful so interesting because i i wrote down here that i i i have of course tried to do this and like it's kind of amazing to me that I've I've listened to my you know my monkey voice or whatever the hell you call it right start to take over before I, I think that I'm having one thought but then I become like a circus performer right mm -hmm. and there's like the scarves start coming out of the sleeve <laughs> and then all of a sudden I realize that what started with I have to pick up all of my dogs business, like somehow or another, like the place I traveled to is so far away from that. And like, I don't, and I do think to myself, oh my God, I'm never going to get this right because I actually, I pulled so many scarves out of my sleeve. Like, I don't even remember what the original thought was. That sounds to me like perfect practice. It's amazing. <laughs> That's, you're seeing the wildness of the mind. That's it. That's what you want. And over time, your ability to stay with the breath will increase. So and, and, and so you get better. You do get better, quote unquote, at this. But what you've already achieved is really the big win. I, I don't even know what to say. I feel so happy. I feel at least 5% <laughs> happier. So... So this is me. This is not for listeners. I When I first tried some of this, and I realized how contingent it all feels on breathing... Right, it just, breathing seems so central. And so here's my deal, Dan. I have this like weird genetic lung disorder, right? I'm probably not gonna die from it. I'm probably gonna get by a bus or something, but I do have this weird genetic lung disorder and I can breathe just fine. But like when people tell me to focus on my breath, like there's a part of me that gets like super anxious. It's like, oh, if, like I hope I like, so, so first of all, it, it actually triggers some neuroses on my part and reminds me that my breath is compromised. 
so I, I don't I don't know what you have for that doctor, but I also I just do. think I just also think it's really interesting that breath is so incredibly central to this practice. I actually think you should keep this in because it's very common that people find focusing on the breath to be activating. And if that's you, you shouldn't focus on the breath in meditating. There are lots of what we call them technically the term of art is objects. So you, okay. you can pick as your meditation object, the breath, or you can choose just the feeling of the full body sitting. I that's see. a really good one. That's, that's mostly what I do. Or you can, there's another kind of meditation called loving kindness meditation that I really had trouble with at the beginning because I'm so skeptical and it's, it can feel a little cheesy, but you. Yeah. Would you t talk about this one? Cause I actually yeah. think my listeners might find this one interesting. This meditation features prominently in my practice now. It's called loving kindness. I mean, even the name turned me off. Just seemed like like the type of thing you knit onto a throw pillow. But what you do is uh, close you your eyes. You probably don't. By the way, my my wife needle points. You don't really knit on a pillow. You needle point or something like that. Just so you know. Oh, okay, good enough. I'll, I'll amend the joke going forward. So you you sit quietly close your eyes. You can lie on the ground if you want for this. And you start by bringing to mind a really easy person. It could be your dog. It could be a, so it doesn't even have to be a person. It can be any easy being, a little kid, whatever. And you send in your mind four phrases. May you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you live with ease. I, I heard this the first time and it sounded like Valentine's Day with a gun to my head. I did not want to do this, <laughs> but I'll keep going with it. And on the other end, I'll tell you that there's a lot of scientific evidence here. You then move from an easy person to yourself to a mentor, to a neutral person, somebody you tend to overlook, to a difficult person, best not to start with like Pol Pot, go to like, you know, a mildly annoying person. And then you finish with all beings everywhere. You're just running through this cycle of beings and sending these phrases. And again, it sounds, at least to me, it sounded very annoying, but there's enormous amounts of data to suggest that this practice has psychological, physiological, and even behavioral benefits. If you teach this practice to preschoolers, they become more likely to give away their stickers to kids they do not like. It, it, it's been shown to make people less biased. It, it changes the def default setting in your mind in the direction of friendliness. And what it indicates is that love, again, broadly understood, is not a factory setting that is unalterable. It is a mm. skill that is trainable. And it's, you know, for me as somebody who tends toward the frosty and the aggressive and the angry, just, you know, thanks to my gene pool and conditioning, it's been incredible. And I have really started doing a lot of this since 10% Happier came out. And, you know, it's, it's helped me a lot as I, just to harken back to the, my admission earlier that I still make a lot of mistakes. This has helped me a lot with my tendency, with my particular tendencies toward error. Yeah, that's really interesting. We have just a few more minutes and I wanted to, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you've made lots and lots of cases here in our conversation about what should motivate people to enter into a practice of some sort. And when I wrote my notes for this podcast, and I, I, I feel like I actually need some kind of driver or some kind of motivation. Like behavior change requires motivation. Like if I change my behavior, then these things will be true. And those things that I want, 
or need in my life are such that I'm willing to change my behavior, right? And I, because I think meditation has a bit of a PR problem, like if I meditate, I'll be calmer, like just doesn't cut it for me, right? I, I think to myself, I'm never going to be calmer. Like I'm, that's not, it's not how I roll, right? And I wonder as you think about it, how to frame motivation for people to go down this path. And I jokingly said that if you could promise me that I would never lose my keys, like I would, I would meditate. <laughs> Right? Like if if I knew that that was the end game, like I'm 65, I am in because I know I'm going to spend the rest of my days looking for my keys. But then then I was reading some work by Daniel Goldman who's also, you know, sort of in the meditation space and he is, you know, not the founder of, but sort of gets a lot of credit for bringing emotional intelligence into the public sphere. And the notion that it that meditation can drive EQ is very compelling to me, right? And it should be, as I'm looking at my listeners I can't see, it should be to each of you because EQ is sort of an essential, to me, it's sort of an essential ingredient to, I, I don't even know what, how to answer the end this sentence, like good humans or, you know, a good life leaders. well good leaders for sure yeah so anyway my last question is about motivation and i know you're not going to tell me i'm going to be able to find my keys and i'm prepared to accept that well actually i do think so i do think it will help with losing your keys because what is mindfulness if not being awake and aware in the present moment and that's when you lose your keys when you're asleep you know you're sleepwalking with autopilot which most of that's a state in which most of us live our lives right there are very few things that meditation or training the mind broadly understood won't help with. The way I would frame it in terms of motivation is like, where are you suffering in your life? Mm. You know, are you, can you not sleep because your mind is racing so much? Are you being short with the people around you because you're pushing so hard? Are you kicking your own ass in a way that makes you unhappy? Are you standing in front of the mirror, critiquing every part of your body? Are you unable to focus because you're so scattered? Are your relationships suffering because you are having trouble communicating what you're thinking and feeling? Are you anxious and unable to, or in finding that your function is diminished because you're coiled up in rumination and worry, some of which might not be so helpful? Are you depressed? Are you, you're, you know, finding that your functioning is, is degraded by, you know, a, a sort of paralytic sadness? So many flavors of human suffering. And there's a reason why the Buddha, and he gets a bad rap for this. The first thing he said, his his big pronouncement, the first public utterance he made after getting enlightened was life is suffering. Now he gets a bad rap for that because it makes it sound like life is all you just like chained to a rock, having your innards pecked out by crows. That's not what he meant, which is that <laughs> life, is, life is going to be unsatisfying if your mind is untrained. Life is going to be frustrating if, yeah. you're, if your attitude is off, if you're not seeing things correctly. And I think that suffering is a great place to start because <laughs> that's going to motivate you. We don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like to be unhappy. We don't like to be scared or sad. And, and so I would focus on those parts of your life and know that working with your mind to address those issues is eminently possible. This is an evidence-based 
assertion. Not, you know, you might be thinking, oh, why am I listening to this washed up ex anchorman? No, there's a lot. You should listen to people like Danny Goldman, who's a great friend of mine and a, and a mentor who wrote a book with an eminent neuroscientist whose name is Richard Davidson. Richie's also a friend and a mentor to me called Altered Traits. And they, t- they walk you through all the science around what meditation can do and yeah. all the many benefits it can have. And by the way, I'm not a meditation fundamentalist. I, I think that meditation pairs very nicely with psychotherapy, with medication if you need it, yeah. with other aspects of what I call the pantheon of no-brainers when it comes to mental health, like getting enough sleep, exercising and eating well without making yourself crazy around it. That's a very important asterisk there. And then the, the 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 grandmother of them all, the most important lever to pull when it comes to mental health is just focusing on the quality of your relationships. And all of these are intertwined. Like it's yeah. hard to have good relationships if you're not sleeping enough. It's challenging to have good relationships if your EQ is so low that you're just blurting out unhelpful stuff. And so, you know, I, I kind of look at this in a holistic way. And so back to your question, motivation, look at where you're struggling in your life and let that push you forward. Alternatively, what do you, you know, set a positive goal? What do you care about the most? What do you want to achieve in this life? And let that pull you forward. Yeah. Finally, just to say that habit change, human behavior change is very, very hard. Right. And that can sound like a life is suffering sort of gloomy proclamation, but it's actually very helpful just to know that you should set the bar low, start small, Mm-hmm. I often say about meditation, it's great to start with the idea of one minute and and on a daily-ish basis. And that is when motivation from a habit formation standpoint can switch from extrinsic, like I'm doing this because Dan Harris or the scientists tell me it's good for me, to intrinsic motivation because I'm I'm doing this because I'm seeing the benefits for yeah. myself. Yeah. And, and then off you go. I think that's a great place to leave it. Any last words you want to share with listeners before we let you go on with your day? If you have a major foundation, you want to back happiness-based content, like documentary content or something like that, reach out to me and uh, let's talk. Yeah, I was just going to say, if people want to learn more about 10% Happier, where do they find where do they find good resources, your, your resources? My organization is a bit in flux, but if you go to 10percent.com right now, you'll, you can get access to the meditation app and then my podcast, which is two and sometimes three times a week. Uh, of wow. content. And you can also submit a comment. If you want to reach me in some way, you can submit a comment there. And 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 that's that's how to get to me. Excellent. Dan, I really appreciate, as I said, I, I, I found your book to be, it really resonated for me. And I do think that the story-based, the story-based component of it really actually brought me in, in a way that other books about the subject have not. So, and I do think that some of the things that you have described, people face them every day. And I think nonprofit leaders do not actually, one of the reasons I asked about the motivation piece was because everything is always seems urgent, right? If you ready, you're running a suicide hotline. How do you decide that one thing is not urgent? Right. 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 And so making time, however you might, and seeing that if you don't do things like this, that you that these are some of the paths to avoid really burning out. And when in fact what you really want to do is help people, other people who are struggling. So anyway, Dan, it was really a pleasure to meet you and and thanks for the good work that you're doing to educate people about the power of this. Thank you, Joan. Thanks for the good work you're doing. My pleasure. So thanks everybody for joining us. Thanks for the good work you do. Take good care of yourself. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. 
I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.